I love Romans 7. <laughs> uh, it's such a weird, wonderful, complicated chapter. As I said last week, several scholars have commented on, on how it's actually a pretty difficult chapter to understand. Paul wrestling with the law and those in the church in Rome who are Jewish and now believing in Jesus as the Messiah and how we understand our relationship to the law when we, who are in Christ, most of us, still continue to struggle with our sin. But I love, I love Romans 7, God's mercy. I love that this is in our Bibles. I love that this is in our Bibles in the same way that I love that the, the Psalms are in our Bibles. As we read this morning in our call to worship Psalm 30, where you know, in one breath David is praying, save me from my enemies, save me from the pit, save me from myself. And in the next breath, Lord, I trust you. You are good. You walk with me. Your steadfast love endures forever. I love the realism about the gospel. The deep realism that takes the problem of evil, the problem of our own sin and suffering, the problem of the brokenness of the world very seriously. Right? The, the Bible isn't some uninterrupted strain of moral stories so that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder. It's, it's not, you know, the ancient Near Eastern version of the secret. It's not a self-help book. But nor is, is the gospel and Christ revealed in the scriptures some way for us to escape our struggles. And, you know, walk around with pride and pretense as if we had arrived. You know, we're, we're perfect, we're great, we're good, thanks, we don't need any help. It's not self-help, it's not escape, it's the real reality of what it means for us who are Christians to struggle and to grieve and to wrestle with God, with our sin, but not without hope. Not without and contained within and sustained by the mercy of God in Christ. And so in verse 24, Paul cries out this, this wonderful psalm-like prayer. And in fact, several commentators say that this, this section of Romans is almost like Paul's version of the Psalms. He says, who will save me from the body of death, from this body of death, from this brokenness and this struggle that I continue to live in? Now, I just want to say here at the outset, our bodies are good, right? Our, our bodies are good. The physical world is good. We're not, we're not Gnostics here. We don't believe that Food and drink and sex and these things are bad. No, they're, they're very good, in fact. God made all these things. He said they are, they are good. And of man and woman, he said they are very good. But what does Paul show us? The problem is sin. And so we relate to Paul's cry in verse 24. We know that the physical world is good, but we know that the way that we are in it and approach it and deal with it is broken. And so we, we feel these things. When Paul says, who will save me from this body of death? For, for many of you, that, that isn't just some sort of abstract question. You know, out in the, in the spiritual ether of the mystics. You know, only Paul is spiritual enough to say something like that. No, you're, you're relating to that right now, whether it's heart or mind or soul or strength. Perhaps it's the broken body or the broken spirit of a loved one. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's an ongoing medical issue or a chronic illness or maybe some sort of chronic struggle that you 
just can't seem to get past. And you know as a Christian and you believe that all will be redeemed. All things will be made new. And at the same time, whatever you are going through or whatever someone is going through who you love, even if you could say, oh, well, it's way worse on the other side of the world. Fine. But it's real for you. If you're in it and you're dealing with it, it's real for you. It's your reality. It's your struggle. And God cares. So as we go forward this morning, I just want us to continue to ask this question. Where do you see, where do you see the body of death? Where, where do you cry out from your soul with Paul and the Psalms? Who will save me from this body of death in your life, in your purview, in your relationships? Where is that your reality? Now, personally, I don't really struggle with sin. So I just want to tell you that right out of the gate. I don't really struggle very much. Um, no, that is, that is a lie. I mean, just studying this text this week, so, so convicting. And I made the mistake of looking back over some of my old journals. I'm too afraid to look at the ones that I did in college. Those have all been burned. They've all been offered up as a sacrificial offering on the altar of a bonfire. Uh, but I still have some journals from the last few years. And if any of you have seen that movie that Jim Carrey was in, 23... Anyone seen that movie? No? Okay, well, it's kind of like, it's the diary of a madman, right? I'm reading back through these journal entries, and I mean, I'm not that unstable, but I'm a little bit unstable, like the rest of you. And actually, I can, I can appear extremely stable, but ooh, man, you start to take out those little toothpick crutches, add a little stress, put a little water on the roof, and it's, it's amazing how, how quickly it can go from, you know, the, the put-together pastor to the one who is undone. So I relate to Paul as do you, and you know, sometimes I do the things I don't want to do because rationally, logically, I know I shouldn't do them. I know they don't lead to human flourishing and God's glory and my joy and recreation. And the things I, I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do want to do, eat a little bit less, exercise at all. <laughs> Not a little bit more, like at all. And my wife told me, walking to lunch from your car and back does not count. That's not exercise. I said, well, what if I do lunges on the way to Tomasita? She said, nope, still doesn't count. And then, you know, recently one that, that's been really real to me is just taming my tongue. Taming my tongue. So we got together recently with some friends, and I'll just say right out of the gate that with these friends who we love and we care about, but we are very different politically. And I just prayed, Lord, help my little snarky, only child tongue to be tamed. Because what I want to do is I want to slip in a little jab. I want to say something kind of provocative. It's, oh, it's a joke. No, it's not. You know it's not a joke. I know it's not a joke. And yet, wow, do I struggle to do that. When I feel justified, when I feel right, when I want to convince someone of something. Oh, forget the peacefulness of the, the relationship. And so we're here with Paul. And I want us to remember as we go into Romans 7 that the very nature of what it means to be Israel, the children of God, the covenant children of God, those who exist under the promise of God because of his grace, to be Israel means to wrestle with God. That's what the word means. The one who strives with Yahweh, the Lord, the one who wrestles with God. 
So it doesn't mean to be the people of God, submission. Just submit. Now, there, there are philosophical worldviews and religions that teach that. Just submit to God. Shut up. But that's not what it means to be Israel. The true Israel of God. Those who are in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't mean either, and this would have been more the struggle of, of those Roman, Greek, Gentiles coming into the church in Rome. It doesn't mean that we're resigned to the capricious will of the fates in our struggles. Or the impersonal, you know, bouncing around of atoms as if it was all some sort of accident. No, Paul says, the gospel of Romans 1 through 5, the good news that he has been unfolding now, all these chapters, implies that in Christ, in the grace of Christ, we are meant to struggle with our sin. To struggle with our sin. And that's the main point this morning. Paul's exclamation, struggle with your sin. With Christ in community, publicly, for the life of the world. But struggle with your sin. And because Paul uses this format, I feel comfortable. We're going to approach the text this morning with three questions. Three questions. And I'm just going to read them for you so you know where we're going. First, should we struggle? Second, why do we struggle? And thirdly, okay, how then do we struggle? So first, should we struggle? I think it's important that we start here, right? For, for those who call themselves Christians, little Christ, who live between these two worlds, the now and not yet, the now of the kingdom of God breaking in through the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, but the not yet of the news and of life and traffic and heartburn. In heaven, you will eat all the queso and there will be no heartburn. But as it stands now, we struggle, and I think a fair question is, should we? Should we struggle? What are we to make of Paul here? And so to quote you know, an ancient church father, I think we can sum it up this way. The struggle is real. That's not really from a church father. The struggle is real. We have a few interpretive options when we come to Romans 7, and we certainly don't have time to go into all of those, but I feel confident after having studied this week and standing on the precedent of history that I'm, I'm giving you a fair summary here. So the first option with Romans 7, this I don't do what I want to do, I, you know, the things I don't want to do, I do and all that, is that Paul's talking about someone who's not a Christian. He's talking about a non-Christian. And there's a bunch of reasons why that doesn't make sense. But, but, the, but another option is that he's talking about someone who's kind of they're transitioning into belief. They're kind of transitioning into being saved. And, you know, through the acknowledgement of sin and the, and the vehicle of the law, seeing their faults, they're, they're sort of in this transition to believing and trusting in God. Now, a, another option is that Paul is speaking personally, but he's speaking about his, his former life as one who was backslidden. Or perhaps a fourth option, and I think this is the, the weakest one, because Paul's done this at other place in Romans, and he uses linguistic mechanisms that are nowhere to be found here, like, you know, he's speaking with this kind of, who are you, oh man, in the third person? He's not doing that here. But the fourth option is it's just hypothetical. It's just sort of this hypothetical thing, this experiment, so we can kind of look at it and observe it and go, all right, it's hypothetical, but we don't want to do that. But 
There is a fifth option, which is Paul is essentially here giving us a window into the normal Christian life, into what it looks like to believe the gospel, Romans 1 through 5, to feel the weight of the implications of the gospel, but to be in process, to be those who are growing and changing and coming into the kingdom of God. And there are at least a handful of reasons to believe this is the best interpretation. The first is that Paul makes a pretty sudden change to the present tense. So here he doesn't speak hypothetically or in the third person, but he speaks personally in the first person, in the present tense. We also have Paul's very own precedent. Okay, by the time the, the letter has been written to the church in Rome, Paul has already written letters to other churches where he is unashamed and unafraid about his own weaknesses. He's not afraid to talk about his struggles. He's not afraid to write to the, the church in Corinth and say, look, I've I prayed three times for this thorn of my flesh to be removed. A messenger of Satan, and I wrestled, and I struggled. And when he says he prayed three times, it doesn't mean literally he prayed three times. It means he prayed a lot about this, up to the fullest point. And God's answer isn't, okay, I'll take your struggle away. It's my grace is sufficient for you. So he's not afraid of his weakness. Now, I think the context of the Roman church also weighs in here, too. So we have the present tense, Paul's precedent in his own suffering, but the predicament the persecution and the suffering of these young believers. And I think Paul wants this young, fledgling church, and he wants us to have a realistic view of what it means to be Christians here in Santa Fe. It doesn't mean we act like we've got it all together all the time. If you want to be the stench of legalism and religious self-righteousness to your friends and neighbors, then go out into the world and act like you're perfect. And you've got it all together all the time. And you don't wrestle. You don't struggle. You're great. Now, at the same time, and maybe I speak perhaps to a younger generation like myself, we don't swing the pendulum over here. And every single place we go, you know, it's moping and emo. And I wear my heart on my sleeve. And life is so tough. And yeah, simmer down. So we don't do that either. But Paul is dealing with real people in a real church who are in a real city where it really is hard to walk with the Lord. There, there are people in Rome, both on, on the level of power and politics and neighbors and friends and the religious system and the marketplace itself that, that push against this idea that a crucified Jewish carpenter could possibly be the savior of the world. It's not only foolish, it's offensive. And so you will struggle. And last, we see uh, Paul as he moves from his predicament to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the struggle. Paul describes things here, and you can go back and read it and study it. Paul describes things that can only really be true for one who is already united to Christ. He describes in this struggle things that can only be true for someone who is already, as we say, regenerate, has already been given a new heart. And that's why, you know, St. Augustine and the the reformers, Luther and Calvin and others said, look, this is not a pagan, nor is it some kind of pre-Christian, but this is what it looks like for us in Christ to struggle as we do. Paul says the law is spiritual. He says he delights in the law. Again, the Psalms, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. In the text, he mourns sin. 
And these are, the, these are the trademarks. Not I've got it all together and I'm perfect, but these very things. That I know that the law is spiritual. That I know that it is good, but I mourn my brokenness. These are, the, these are the trademarks of what it means to be a Christian. So I think the best interpretation here is that this is Paul speaking personally, speaking corporately about the church, the new Israel as a whole, but speaking personally about the normal Christian life. And Mike Kruger, who I've quoted repeatedly now, and he's a professor at Reform Seminary in Charlotte, he puts it this way. He said, look, if you're a Christian and you struggle with your sin in Christ, don't despair. You are in the now of God's power, but you are in the not yet of your body. Paul says, of your flesh. We haven't experienced the full power of the resurrection yet. So Kruger says, if you are struggling, hating your sin more, loving Christ more, but struggling, don't despair. You get knocked down, and with the help of Christ Jesus, you get back up again. Instead, Kruger says, worry if you don't ever struggle at all. And I think this is a really important point. Just look, if you're, you know, if you're going through life and there's ups and there's downs and God is showing you your need and that you're desperate for him and if he's meeting that need in Christ, that's, that's normal. That's the normal Christian life, the stock market. It's up, it's down, but if you look at it over 80 years, we're doing pretty good. The Holy Spirit's at work. But man, if you're going through life and you never struggle, if there's never confession, if you're never repenting, if you're never asking for forgiveness, men, Where's my mirror to hold it up to my face? Husband, father, if you're never humbling yourself and asking for forgiveness and confessing your sin and asking the Lord to forgive you and the people you've sinned against, that, that's when you need to worry. Not if you're in the struggle, but by the grace of God, you're growing. But if you look at your life and go, oh, there's no struggle at all. Just, I'm just coasting. Got a nice little house, enough money in the bank, everything's under control, all is well. Kruger says that's when we should be afraid because what's, what's fake, what's, you know, e either that self-help piece or that escape piece is when we go about life with, with no wrestling. That's when we should be worried because ours is a God who wrestles with us to transform us, to conform us into the image of Christ. It's all by grace, but by grace, it's true. So I think here we can just make a point, which I love, and that is this. Let's not over-spiritualize Paul. There's a friend here at the church who gave me a movie to watch. It's from the early 80s, Peter and Paul. Has anyone heard of it? Peter and Paul, the movie from the early 80s? All right, exactly none of you. Hallelujah. <laughs> Wonderful. Let me see how many other illustrations. So let's see, that's two movie fails. What else can I pull out of the hat that no one's heard of? You should watch it. Look, Anthony Hopkins... Have you guys heard of Anthony Hopkins? Let's try that one on for size. Okay, good. Oh, mercy, Lord, okay. Whew. So, Anthony Hopkins plays Paul, and it's brilliant. And even, you know, for those of us who might go on this little trip next May, we're going to watch this movie together. Um, it, it's a beautiful unfolding of the book of Acts, and Peter and Paul and their struggles in the church, and it's not Jewish enough, and it's too Gentile. And this, this Peter and Paul movie is so wonderful because after it, I mean, I was just shocked. It's like, well, you better not over-spiritualize Paul. 
He was a great man. He was a, he was a godly man. He was a man. He was not the God man. <laughs> he was a great man and a godly man, but not the God man. Paul was fallen like the rest of us. And that's why I love what he says in verse 21, just to draw us back there. So I find, when I look inward, when I search my soul, when I read back over my old schizophrenic journals, what I find is that the law, the law in me is that I want to do what's right, but whatever I want to do what's right, evil is close at hand. So Paul has fallen just like us. And I think, you know, one of the things that's so hopeful about this text is that, look, if, if Paul struggled, if Paul wrestled, and if Christ was enough for him, if Jesus met him in those things, even though it's a little bit scary that even the, the apostle Paul would wrestle with his sin, it's equal parts hopeful that Paul needed Jesus too, just like us. So should we struggle? By all means. Should we struggle? Yes. We should and we do in Christ. And it brings us to this next question. Okay, if that's the case, which almost seems a little scandalous, I mean, should we struggle? I mean, shouldn't we be getting better? Yeah, but the getting better is the struggling. The next question is, well, why do we struggle? And of course, here's the big hint, folks. It's, it's not a question of, you know, human beings needing more time in history. History's been going on for a long time. It's not a question of human beings needing more time to figure out the perfect system and the perfect order of rule and reign and prince and principality and government. It's not an issue of human beings needing more external laws. You're not going to get better than the Bible. We've already got all the laws we could ever need. We can't keep them. It's also not an issue of us just knowing in our, in our minds the right propositions, the right, quote, truths to believe. And as you've heard it said, I mean, the longest spiritual distance in the world is the distance between the head and the heart. It's not an issue of knowing more stuff about Jesus and about the gospel. So hint, it's not policy or proposition. It's not you and me and everybody else needing more education. Some of you are unbelievably educated. You still struggle. You, you still cry out with Paul, the things I don't want to do. I do. The things I want to do, why do I struggle to do them? No, I shouldn't be selfish. No, I should love my wife. No, I should be present with my kids. Why is it so hard? So it's neither education nor endowment, as if you had more money or more time or more talent. You could figure it out. Paul asks the question, does the holy Torah, does the good law of God bring about death? And of course he says again, no, absolutely not. It's the law that is like a magnifying glass with the sun in it on an ant. It's the law that magnifies to us the power and the perfection of the character of God. The law is holy and it is good. We are the problem. And so we said in this section... It almost seems like Paul's kind of doing the Psalms. Remember Paul was Jewish? You guys remember Paul was Jewish, right? And he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Remember how he had the entire Old Testament memorized? Probably as a, you know, a trainee under the, the great rabbi Gamaliel. He probably had the entire Old Testament. I can barely memorize like five verses. Memorized. And so it's also been, been shown, I think convincingly, by scholars from within our tradition that 
that Romans is almost like Paul's commentary on Genesis. Creation, we are created good, but fall, we are broken. Redemption, Christ is breaking into our brokenness. And consummation, he is taking us to the place where every tear will be wiped from our eyes. So Romans, if it is sort of Paul's commentary on the book of Genesis, shows us that because of sin, there's a conflict of desires. But it also shows us that we can't play the victim card. And as you know, and as I know personally, this is a huge problem in our day and age, isn't it? It's a huge problem in our culture. What's really wrong? Okay, if if the law is good and holy, what's really wrong? Well, we don't want to see what's in ourselves. So we want to pass the blame. You know, the serpent lied to me. That's why I ate it. Okay, Adam, what about you? You had one job, Adam, just one job. To love your wife, to partner with her in this creation, to protect her from from sin, to provide. And, And what does he do? He stands before the Lord, guilty, and he points right back at his wife and goes, she made me do it. She made me do it. What a chump. And we've been struggling with it ever since. It's in us. It's in us. So we can't, we can't play the victim. It doesn't mean some of you have been victimized. Some of you need unbelievable measures of the mercy and the love of Jesus as he slowly, as a father, shepherds you through that pain. And that's, that's absolutely okay. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if Jesus is working within us, he is in a process of growing us from not passing the blame, but doing the very hard work of owning our stuff. Because we all, in our souls, kind of want to be our own little gods. We must own our stuff. So Paul says in this text six times, for I do not, for I do not, for I do not. And we all relate an illustration. It's like the harder you try to hug the law, to keep the law, to obey, the harder you hug the law, the louder the law begins to whisper in your ear, sinner. And so we know that the law is good. And in our tradition, we've spoken of three uses of the law. Okay, what are the three uses of the law? The first is the law is a teacher. It teaches us that we need Christ. So it leads us helpless and hopeless to Christ. By showing us our our brokenness and our sin. The law also has a a civic function in sort of the common grace law of the land. And of course, there's the moral law. We know, as Paul says, what it is to be good and what it is to sin because the law reflects God's perfect character. But notice what you didn't hear there. It can teach you that you need Jesus. It, It can be helpful in a civic sense. It provides an ultimate standard and norm for ethics and morality. But what you didn't hear there is that the law can save you. What the law cannot do is it cannot save you from this body of death. So I love this. Some of you guys have seen this story online or maybe you've heard it before. But do you know Payless Shoes? Everybody know Payless Shoes? I'm probably wearing Payless Shoes right now. All right. So Payless Shoes wanted to troll the hipsters. Payless Shoes wanted to kind of, you know, troll the, the whole luxury brand market. And so they did this amazing thing. They bought a storefront, and instead of calling it Payless, they changed the name to Palessi. Palessi in Italian. And I mean, they did the whole thing up. I'm sure they had some 
advertising and marketing genius behind this. And they made it look like, you know, a Gucci or a Louis Vuitton type of a store. But all the shoes in the store were Payless shoes. Like $10 shoes, $20 shoes, marked up to $500, $1,000, $2,000 for a pair of boots. And, and the, the drooling hipsters, foaming at their mouth, fear of missing out on the new cool store and the new cool brand, lined up in droves to pay $500 and $1,000 for ghetto Payless shoes. But at the end of the day, and of course, as people actually paid money for these shoes, and as they were leaving, you know, they, they told them, they broke it to them, you just got trolled, you got hacked, you got owned, these are Payless shoes, they gave them their money back, and how nice, they gave them the $20 shoes for free. All right. But I think there's something, I think there's something for us to see here, that the, the law is like that. All right, the law is functional and beautiful, it's a good pair of shoes. But our sin is like that. It doesn't matter how you dress it up. It doesn't matter how much flashing lights you put around the law and how high class you make it look. The fact is, at the end of the day, no matter how palessy we want it to be, it's payless. We cannot keep the law. And that is why we struggle. So should we struggle? Yeah. Why do we struggle? We struggle because we are prisoners of war, as Paul says. We are spiritual and being recreated, but we're still in the flesh. And again, I want you to hear this as encouragement to your souls, that you're not alone, that you don't need to hide. One of the most demonic lies that is often believed in the church is that whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're dealing with, you just, you better not tell anyone. You better not tell anyone. Not here. Not here where everybody likes you and you're nice and you've got a, a sweet little reputation to uphold. No. No, you're, you're, you're not alone. There's two laws, there's two driving forces that operate not just in a, in a sinner but in every believer. In fact, they're not in, in sinners. In, in those who don't know Christ, there's only really one driving force. Even if they do really sweet, nice, awesome things at the end of the day, if they don't have Christ, it's for their own glory, not God's. So if that's true, then how do we struggle? How do we struggle? And this is why I love, like the Psalms, that this passage comes back to verse 25. So there's mercy for you in, should I be struggling? Well, kind of, yeah, it's the normal Christian life. And again, that's never an excuse for sin, but it's a window into your reality. Okay, and why am I struggling? Well, it's, it's because of you. It's because the law magnifies what's really there in our hearts. And man, do we need God's help. But Paul brings us back. The gospel brings us back. Good news brings us back to verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The law reveals the guilt of our sin. Jesus comes to bear our sin to keep the law for us, to stand in our place, to atone for our sin by his blood as we sang, to raise it from the grave, to wrestle death itself to the ground. Even as we struggle and wrestle, not with flesh and blood, but powers and principalities, Christ has come to wrestle death itself to the ground. 
So where there was guilt, there is now grace. And how do we respond? Paul in verse 25, thanks be to God. We respond with gratitude. And this is what makes Christians so beautiful. You guys, this is what makes us powerful and full of the power of the Holy Spirit in this community, loving each other and loving our city. This is what we have to offer to the world. Not that we have it all together. Not we, I mean, I know some people, I got some friends that aren't Christians. They're better people than I am. Their journals are probably a little less schizophrenic. I'm trying, they're trying, but that's not what we have to offer. Don't you understand? What we have to offer is, is exactly this. Thanks be to God. That we go out into the world, we take evil and pain and the news and brokenness seriously, but we take it equally seriously that the kingdom is broken in. That Jesus is the true and faithful Israelite. That he is creating for the glory of the Father, through the Holy Spirit, a new and true and better Israel. A people of God who are saved by grace, who are being transformed from one glory to the next. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who stood in our place, who wrestled for us in the past, who wrestles with us now, and who will fully wrestle death to the ground one day as we stand before him in heaven. You will stand before God, and the books will be opened, and the law will be read, and there will be place after place in our lives where, okay, didn't do that, failed here, failed there, didn't do that, failed on this one, screwed up there. And on each of those, Jesus will proclaim over us, that one is mine. And because Christ not only kept the law, but wrestled death to the grave, he alone has the authority to do that. So how do we struggle? With gratitude. We struggle with gratitude. In the big things, thank you God that I breathe this morning. Thank you God that I have a family that loves me, or at least some people that love me. This is so stupid, but I opened my fridge this morning and the milk for my coffee was still cold. Thank you God that my fridge is still working. Thank you Lord for my children. Thank you, God, for, you know, a car that works and food on the table. I grew up hearing the stories from my, my great-grandma, you know, daughter of German immigrants in New York and the Great Depression, counting beans across the table. And I remember when I was more young and more foolish than I am now, I wondered why, why are my grandparents so, you know, why are they so tight financially? Maybe if I had known what it was like to sit at your table and watch your mom count beans across the table, I would have a little bit of a more realistic view of, you know, what it means to not have. So thank you, God, that there's food in my cupboard. How do we struggle? With gratitude. We struggle as those who are thankful that Jesus is alive, that he is wrestling death down in us, that he is bringing new life. And that's exactly what our mission is here in Santa Fe. Not to go out and, and be, you know, perfect all the time. Happy, happy Christians who never struggle. But to carefully, cautiously, with wisdom, struggle in public so that, like Paul, the grace of God can be shown to be sufficient to our friends and to our labor and to our neighbors. I want to close just with this great little quote from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, who was an um, English preacher and theologian in London, um, 
gifted man of the Lord, great ministry, big church, metropolitan tabernacle. He had an orphanage, did a lot of great things. He also struggled with depression horribly, horribly. He had crippling depression for most of his entire adult life. And I'm sure he tried to pray it away every day. He wrestled. (laughs) On the outside, it looked like everything was great. What an amazing ministry this guy has. I want to be like old Chucky Spurge. But he tells the story of he would go home on Sundays and he would just literally be in the fetal position, weeping until the next morning, just crippled by despair and brokenness. And yet he said these words. So we grieve and we struggle. Should we? Yes. Why do we? Our sin. How do we? Gratitude. But hear this. He said, I have learned in my life and in my struggles I have learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. So as we struggle, we struggle not as those who have no hope, but we struggle in Christ, united to him, in the grace of God whose promise cannot be broken, and we struggle boldly with our sin. Let's pray. Jesus, how thankful we are that you came and took on flesh, broken and weak flesh, flesh that cried in your mother's arms, flesh that was irritated by diaper rash, flesh that stubbed its toe as you were growing up, flesh that was tired and hungry and lonely so you had to get away and go be alone and pray, flesh that wept when you said, Father, if there's anything you can do to take this cup, but not my wills, but your will be done. Jesus, we are so thankful you came and struggled in flesh so that by that crucified flesh, you might raise from the dead in a glorified body, wrestle death to the ground forever, and be the first fruits of the new creation which we long for. Who will save us from these bodies of death? You will. So thanks be to you, our God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, as we struggle in Christ, in grace. We are so thankful for the hope of the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.